0: Well, Dr. Herb Revis from North Jacksonville Baptist Church tells a story about a pastor who desperately wanted to be able to kind of capture a sense of holiness in his church. He felt like they had lost that somewhere along the way. And so, his, as he began to think through it and how he could do that, he began to uh, be reminded of, of incense pots. And and how incense inside of a church can make people feel and sense and remember the holiness of God. And so he actually found a couple incense pots and met with his deacons, and they all sat down, and he said, guys, now here's what we need to do. He goes, I'm going to be preaching on the holiness of God, and when I give you the sign... You need to go ahead and you need to have them lit, and you need to come down the altars, and you need to wave them, and you need to let that smoke just billow that incense just billow out, and he goes, and people are going to know what it's like to be in the presence the holiness of God. And so he waited for a moment, and then and then that, 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 that actually that day came when he began to preach on holiness, and everybody was in their place, and at the right time during the sermon, the preacher kind of <clears throat> cleared his voice, kind of sat back and let out a yell, he said. I'm ready for the incense pots. And all of a sudden, nothing. So he cleared his voice again. And he said, I said, I'm ready for the incense pots. And all of a sudden, this little voice, thank you, thank you very much. This little voice, this little voice in the very back, all of a sudden he hears it. And it's kind of strained. And he hears hears his, his deacons go, we ain't got no incense pots. We threw them out the window cause the bottoms got hot. Yeah. I don't know why I told that joke. I just needed an opening. And so that was it. Now, there is actually a point to it, and that is that is jokes can be funny. That's if you if you have a soul. and I could some of you. Um, but repeated jokes seem to not be nearly as funny. In fact, um, I I have to imagine that at some time, at some place, somebody laughed at the joke, why did the chicken cross the road punchline to get to the other side? That for somebody at some time that was funny, but because it's been so repeated and because of its familiarity, it kind of loses its punch over time. And this can be true for just about anything. I think the statement is true when we say that familiarity often breeds contempt and that could be with just about anything we become overly familiar with. Unfortunately, can even be when we approach passages like this or texts like this in 2 Samuel. We've actually gone through 20 chapters, and uh, we're on our 20th chapter in the book of Second Samuel. There's only 24 if you're counting, and uh, we'll soon be done. But what we've found, if you've been along with our study, is that there's a repetition of the themes over and over and over again which makes it a challenge, believe me, to be able to preach it and try to preach something that is fresh uh, each week. But it's also hard as a hearer because oftentimes when we first hear those truths in the early part of the study, they captured our minds and our imaginations and our hearts, and it it convicted us, and it it led us to be able to respond to these truths, and we would leave with our hearts filled uh, of things that we were hearing, sometimes for the first time or hadn't heard for a long period of time. But again, when these same themes every week are being repeated There's the challenge of being gripped and being changed by those truths. So oftentimes what we have to do is what a preacher has to do is he has to preach it maybe in a different way. Same theme, different way, different nuance that he's trying to bring to it, maybe in a way that we haven't really thought of it before. And that's certainly our challenge and my challenge today and yours as well as we come to chapter 20 because in chapter 20 we see more of the same. We see more rebellion, more pain caused by sin, and more of God's judgment, and so when we come to this, again, it's, it's, it's difficult, but it's something that God wants. We believe that all of the Word of God is God's Word. All of it is inspired. All of it is, is, is good for us, for life and for godliness. We all agree with that. But we need to trust in God today. Before we take of the Lord's Supper, we want to jump into some very familiar truths. But what I want to do is I want to kind of bring a different aspect to that truth that we find in the text of Scripture this morning. So there's familiar, but there's a little bit of new as well. And then what I want to do at the very end is I want to kind of draw, because my hope is for us to prepare our hearts before the taking of the Lord's Supper. And so my, my, my desire is to do that. I'm just going to try to bring it all together at the end. But there are two points we want to look at this morning, both familiar and new. Notice this, point number one, God's authority is greater than my excuses. God's authority is greater than my excuses. At the end of chapter 19, it was interesting because we saw this this divide get even greater between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and and really the rift really stemmed from King David himself. When King David came back from exile and he came to Jerusalem, the northern kingdom believed that he was showing um, some favoritism to the southern kingdom of Judah, that he wasn't showing to them their feelings were hurt. And when they objected, they actually objected to Judah and began to complain to them. And Judah basically said, well, no wonder he's treating us better because we're more deserving than you are. Well, you can imagine for the northern tribe, that didn't the northern kingdom, that didn't go over well. So they didn't want anything to do with them. But more importantly, they wanted nothing to do with David. And we pick up here and you read in verse 1, that there's a man by the name of Sheba that actually leads a revolt and rebellion against David. And and, and we read there in verse 1, he says, we have no portion. he, He sounds a trumpet and he said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bechari. And he says, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Now, we have to be very careful that we don't see this as just some kind of uh, outcome of irreconcilable differences, that we don't look at them and say, well, look, the people from the north are way different than the south. This wasn't really a good match in the beginning. They're just going to stray. This is, they have too many differences. It's better off for everybody in the party just to go their separate ways. That would be better for everyone. We need not to look at this that way. Instead, we need to look at this for what it is. It is nothing short of blatant rebellion against God himself. It was God who had ordained David to rule over the people, not only of Judah, but also over all of Israel. He had ordained that, which means this was his will, which means that his job for David was to rule his people, lead his people, and the responsibility by God for the people was to follow that leadership to do what it was that the king would ultimately them say. So for them to reject David and to kick him to the curb was to reject God and his will for them. It was blatant rebellion of what they're ultimately doing within the text. Now, when we stop here, this is the part that's the same. There's really nothing different. We've been reading about this in almost every chapter through the book of 2 Samuel. It's getting a little tiring. People are constantly rebelling against God. He says, do this, they do the opposite. And so nothing is new, but what is new, the nuance that sets it apart is that we actually see a little bit of why it was that they rebelled against God. Now, normally we could just chalk that up to what? To sin. Well, they're rebelling because of the wickedness of their heart, and that's true. But they actually have reasons in their mind which they believe validates their disobedience and the rejection of the king, and therefore the rejection of God. What would it have been? Well, if you have gone to Sheba... If you have gone to these people because of how it links into chapter 19, they would just very clearly say, we've been mistreated by the king and we've been mistreated by the southern kingdom. Therefore, we're breaking free. That validates what it is that we are ultimately doing. You say, why is that significant? Because it's not only the northern kingdom of Israel that struggles with the same problem and is apt to make excuses for why they, they disobey God. We're all, in one way or another, experts at coming up with myriads of different reasons to validate why it is that we disobey the clear commands of God. Many of us love to be able to boast. We're people of the Word, especially at Mercy. We're people of the book, man. We're all about the Word of God. Just preach the Word of God. We submit to the Word of God. You might have a bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Somebody else comes, and they're more godly than you, so they say, well, God said it, and that settles it, whether I believe it or not right? And so people, they exalt this, and they just say, we're people of the Word, and we are most of the time, until God's Word and will conflicts with our own circumstances, situations, and experiences. We are all apt, or many of us are apt, to give reasons why God's commands simply do not apply to us. We confidently, from time to time, will state that we, that that somehow His command Uh, that we are exempt from obeying what he's specifically commanding us because of what it is that we are now facing and going through. Here's how the logic plays out. The logic is that there are bad reasons to disobey God, and there are good reasons to disobey God. Find a good one, and you're off the hook for disobeying. The good reason that people often bring up for disobeying the commands of God, and you hear it on the mouth of people all the time, has something to do with some level of intense suffering. In other words, if if you obey and the suffering is great enough, then you're off the hook. You really don't have to obey because the consequence of your obedience would be too great for anybody to bear. And nobody would ultimately expect you to be able to live underneath that. If what God commands then somehow is too difficult, too painful, too inconvenient, too costly, or results in too much suffering, Then there is some validity in no longer doing what God has called us to do. Or let me put it in more personal terms. Maybe you've heard it more like this I will not forgive because the offense has been too great for me to forgive. I will not reconcile with my spouse because my spouse has caused me too much pain. I will not pay my debt because my debt is far too costly. Many of us, we we profess faith in Christ and constantly looking and seeking for some validation to not do what it is that God has called us to do. The question for us is this, does the Bible teach uh, that we obey unless it is too costly, or does the Bible teach that we obey at any cost? You know, apparently, I don't know if you've read the word recently, and I believe that you are because we're people of the book. But when I think of examples of the Word of God, for example, the story of of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel chapter 3, I think that answers that very question for us, doesn't it? I mean, here is King Nebuchadnezzar, and he basically builds a massive golden image and tells everybody, including the Jewish people, that you need to bow down whenever the trumpets sound. You need to bow down, and you need to worship this false god. One problem God had commanded them, you don't worship false gods. He said, you shall have no other god before me, He then in turn tells them to do what? He says, you shall make no graven image. And so here they are at a place at a crossroads. And I don't know if you've ever read and been familiar with that text. But we only have three boys that basically refused to bow. So apparently other people, other other Jewish people, uh, other of God's people are bowing. And can't you almost with your sanctified imagination understand probably what they're saying? Hey guys, listen, if you bow, you're going to die. This is a high cost. Look, the rest of us understand. We don't understand. We're not supposed to do this, but God would never require you to be able to suffer in such a way for righteousness' sake. This would be ridiculous for you to be able to go through something like this. And yet, fortunately, this wasn't these young men's response at all. Instead, they say to him in verses 16 through 18, he says, "Oh Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter.'" He says, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And we deliver, and he'll deliver us out of your hand, O king. In other words, hey, if we obey, you throw us in there. God can, God can take away the sting of that fiery furnace. He can rescue us out of that thing. But here's what I love. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The teaching of the Word of God is that we obey at any cost. And there are no excuses for you and for I to validate our sinfulness against Him. You say, well, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, there's two things we can do, I think, at least. In other words, it teaches us not to validate the sins of others. Parents are really notorious for this oftentimes. We love our kids so much, have such a soft spot in our hearts. And when they come to us and they begin to tell us about how they're struggling with something and they're going through something and and very very difficult hardship that they're going through, we're sitting there going, there, 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 we understand. And they're making some wrong decisions and they say, this is what I'm going to do. And sometimes the the, the, the mercy and the grace is so great in that particular point, we kind of overlook what they're actually supposed to do because we don't want to see them suffer. Look, if somebody comes to you and they, as a brother and sister in Christ and they go, hey, look, this is what we're thinking about doing. And if it's blatantly wrong, you need to be brokenhearted for them. You need to mourn for them. You need to walk through. You and I need to walk with each other, bearing that, that difficulty and hardship along with one another, experiencing that same suffering along with them as much as we're able to be able to do. But at the same time, you and I have to love each other enough. Remember, it's not merciful to tell somebody that it's okay to obey, disobey God. That's not merciful. It's merciful and gracious to sit there and say, hey, this is going to be tough. But may I encourage you to obey God at any cost. No excuse will validate your sinful action. Second thing I think that we do is not only to validate sin, sins of others, but we don't need to be validating our own sin. And I think that's more the point in the application. And what I mean by that is this, is years ago I was at Walmart, <clears throat> I've seen some of you there, and uh, and uh, I, was, I was at the tire place, and I, to this point I still don't remember what I was waiting on, but I was waiting for a while with something, and I was standing there, and up was this big screen, like a big screen up on the television, and it's actually the surveillance video of like what's going on, I guess to try to keep people from ripping things off, and, um, and uh i got a story about that, but I'm not going to get sidetracked. Um, anyway, and we're, 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 we're sitting there, and, and, and I'm looking up, and, and I look up at this camera, and it's kind of like looking down you know, at, at the people, at the different counters and things like that. And I look up, and I'm like, wow. I was kind of got the little bit of giggles because I was looking at this guy, and I could see the top of his head, and I'm like, dude, that guy is going bald big time and everything. And then the more I got to look, the more I got to giggle, I started to notice that every time I turned left, he turned left. And every time I turn right, he turned right. So I did a little bit of this, and I thought, that dude's me. <laughs> and I think that's, that's really what the Scriptures are ultimately trying to do, not for you us to be able to sit there and go, okay, how can I pe- be prepared when people bring their excuses to validate their own sin so I know how to be able to minister to them? That's great. But the question is, how are you validating your sin? This, the, the idea is for you, for that camera of the Word of God to be able to draw complete attention to yourself and to your heart and to your actions and for you to be able to sit down. Is there anywhere in in my life that I'm validating right now and saying I'm not obeying and here's the reasons why. We are to obey God at any cost. We need to understand that God's authority is greater than my excuses. Number two, your favorite part, we're halfway done. Here it is. Sin's misery is greater than the initial pain. Sin's misery is greater than the initial pain. If you look at verse 3, notice, if you will, the Bible says, And David came to his house at at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and he put them in the house under guard, and he provided for them. Now, interesting thing, just to catch you up to speed, when David was sent into exile by the sinful actions of his son Absalom, he left, but he left behind ten concubines to be able to care for the palace and to administrate the matters of the palace. Well, while he was gone, Absalom did something incredibly egregious, in an act of aggression, and to initiate his revolt against David, he went into the concubines, the Word of God says, and he actually raped those women. Horrible, horrific sin that he committed. And none of us would ever sit back and blame the father for that. We wouldn't sit back and go, well, well, look, it's all his father's fault. Absalom can't turn to his dad and say, well, dad, it's your fault. No, this is because of his own sin that he committed this, with nobody else ultimately to blame. But at the same time, the author reminds us, but this is still ultimately a consequence of David's own sin. We know that from back in chapter 12 and verse 11 when he said this, Thus says the Lord, when he's confronted in his sin against Bathsheba, what happens? The prophet comes, The prophet, God speaks to the prophet, and he says this to him. It says, that says the Lord, behold, I will raise up against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and I will give them to your neighbor and he will lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Then he goes on to say, what you try to do in darkness, this man will do to the light for all to be able to see. It's ultimately a consequence of his own sin. David has blame in the midst of this. And so when he comes back, now, now, now when he comes back, here's, What's, what's interesting about this, when he comes back, he de- he actually does the right thing. The first thing he does, and you'll see this in the, in, in, the, in the layout of chapter 20, the first thing he does is go back and he begins to minister to these women. They're hurting, they've been hum- humiliated, they've been victimized, uh, they're, they're struggling, they're, they're, they're no doubt frightened, but David begins to minister to them to help them to try to ease their pain. I, I love that the Word of God adds this uh, in here. So what does he do? He provides for them, he gives them a house, he gives them food, he gives them clothes. He does all the things that compassionately we should do. And what I love is, by the way, that this is a demonstration of what true repentance looks like. True repentance is not just simply saying, I'm sorry, or hey, I take responsibility for this. Or then just to be able to move on and try to get away from that portion of your life and never think about it again. I mean, this is what celebrities do, right? This is what athletes do. When they, when they do something horrific, they're caught in it, and they get up and go, I'm sorry, I take full responsibility. And you're like, full responsibility? What does that even mean? This is costing you nothing. But what David realizes, he comes back, and he does something completely different. He realizes repentance is not merely acknowledging what you did was wrong, and then just forgetting about it. It often requires steps to address the pain of our sin that we have caused other people. In the wake of our sin, people have been hurt. And we can't just sit there, hey, man, forgive me, forget. God forgives me. You should forgive me, and let's just all move on. No, there's a wake, there's a sensitivity of going, I've caused this this wreck. I want to do something about it. So this is good for David. But up at this part, we don't really see anything new, do we? Up at this part, we don't see anything new. There's a lot of really, there's a lot of pain being caused because of other people's sin all the way through the text of Scripture. That has not been any different. What is different in the nuance to this particular text is we're not talking about the kind of pain that you experience at the point of sin. We're talking about the type of suffering that continues on after the initial act of sin. That's what we see in the passage of Scripture. Notice what it says then in the next verse. He says, but he did not go into them, he says, so that they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. So what happens with these women is David is no longer allowed to have any kind of relationship with them. Why? Because Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 15 said that if a man's son were to have any kind of physical connection or contact with uh, his wives, that he could never then come back and have any kind of physical relationship with them. Again, it was completely forbidden and outlawed. And so what we find here is that now these women, not only did they suffer the act, the horrible act of those rapes, but now they're going to continue some suffering from what David and Absalom did now for the rest of their lives. They'll never be able to be married. They'll never be able to have a home. They'll never be able to have children. And they're going to be left in, in widowhood. Yes, everything's taken care of, but what a lonely existence for them for the rest of their life. And What was this caused by? Well, David sinned against one woman, but ten ultimately end up suffering. Absalom commits a horrific sin, but the but the but the pain of that sin, the misery of that sin, isn't limited just at that one moment of time. It continues far and wide and much longer than anybody would ever ever imagine. You know, we it's Pastor Dan Pastor Dan's ten year anniversary today. Isn't that pretty cool? Oh. That was so nice. I just wish he was here to have heard that applause. That was uh, fantastic. He's actually going to come in in just a little bit. Um, but in ten years before, when he when I invited him to be able to come or asked him to be able to come, uh, he was trying to sell his home and he's like, "Hey man, we're very close to selling. He goes, oh, you know about two weeks. We're to we're going to close everything out." And, you know, Pastor Dan, of course, right before it's about to be sold, the air conditioning starts to go out. He's not sure why it's not working well. And so, Dave, you know, D- Dan, being a man of integrity, he wants to make sure that he fixes it enough so that when the other people get in, it's working so it can break after they get in. And, j- just kidding. Uh, not really. And so, he's doing all that he can. Now, now, Dan can fix a lot of things. He's very handy. He could do lots of different things, but he has no reason to be touching a air conditioning unit at all. But he decided, hey, maybe I can get in there and I could pull on some things and tug on some things and bang on some things and maybe if I just do enough maybe this puppy will just last another couple of weeks get us out of here get us to be able to sign on the dotted line and we'll be out of here I know it sounds much worse than it actually is but uh, maybe it's my own depravity coming out but it, he decides that this is what he's going to do he's going to ultimately move on so he gets in there and he begins to do all this well in the process of it there's a metal ring that he has somewhere and he ends up knocking it down into the air conditioning unit itself and he's like, well, I don't really know where that thing went, but uh, all right, that's okay. Well, all of a sudden, he goes back inside. Now, the air conditioner's not working at all, at all. So, he tries to take a shortcut by not going and getting a, a regular repairman. He tries to do it himself. That's a shortcut. And then he ends up going to things bad to make it worse because this is in the middle of summer. Now, he and his family have got to suffer in the midst of the heat, right? And it is hot. And so he sits there, and then finally he goes, man, I just need to call a repairman. He gets a, rep- a repairman out there. He ends up coming out, and he goes, I think I found your problem. He goes, you got a couple little problems over here, not big deal, but your big problem. And he pulls up this big metal ring. And he sits there and goes, man, I don't know who did it, but somebody knocked this thing down in, 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 into the unit, and it really messed the whole thing up. You have any idea how it got there, Dan? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So, so, yeah, and then what he finds is, is not only was there this immediate suffering and pain in all of his family of being in the heat, but then he turns around and he hands him a $2,000 bill because of what he ultimately did. And so this is very simple, and we'd sit back and go, well, it's really not a sin to be able to do what Dan ultimately did and trying to fix all this stuff. No, but sin is, in essence, a shortcut. It's basically saying, I'm going to get what God wants me to do, but not doing it in the way that God has designed it to be able to work. That's a shortcut. I'm going to grasp what's not rightfully mine in a way that I ought not to be taking. And what that often does is, for you and I, it often causes a great deal of pain initially, but it's more than that initial pain. It goes on and on and on and on and on a man who sits there and he just he says oh, well i just got a temper problem and then he begins to say things to his wife that's disparaging yes it hurts her in the middle yes it digs deep in the middle but then for years that begins to play out in the relationship and tension within the family when a, son or a mother or father, if they're just not careful, they begin to say things to their kids where well, you can't do anything or you can't do anything right. And in the midst of that, you know that hurts that child. But then for years, that child begins to go through life trying to f- figure out what is their real significance and do they have any at all, all because of what was spoken in a sinful moment. And so what we're trying to get at and what we're trying to say is, hey, guys, that all of this, every single bit of this, is misery that is caused by sin. But the misery that often comes is greater than the initial pain or act of sin. Now we're about to take the Lord's Supper and I said that I was going to try to bring all of this in. Don't have time to go through the rest of the chapter but wanted to stop right there because I think it has much to do with us in our preparation of the Lord's Supper. What does it do? Well Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians that we need to make sure that when we take the Lord's Supper that we are taking it in a worthy manner and not to take it in an unworthy manner. In other words, there are ways that we can present the Lord's Supper, come to the Lord's Supper today, that we're not approaching it in the right way at all. And it's easy for us to be able to do. And I imagine that there are many, many ways for that ultimately to be able to happen. But let me tell you two that I think are on the list, and I think two of them are exactly what we just talked about this morning. First of all, I would say this. If you are thinking right now and sitting back and you have been pontificating, Validating your sin and to do something that is wrong, and you're trying to think of all the reasons why you can validate you're doing what is wrong, or you have already validated your sin, you're living in the midst of it right now, and you keep sinning and you keep thinking to yourself, it's okay because this is too much for me to be able to obey, the cost is too high, then for you to be able to come and to be able, and you and I to come and take the Lord's Supper, then for you and I, we'd be certainly taking it in an unworthy manner. Why is that? Because part of taking the Lord's Supper is identifying that you are receiving the the, the, bread, the, the the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and you are recognizing and receiving that, that that is the only answer for sin. The only way for your sin and my sin to be forgiven is for Jesus Christ to have died on that cross. That's it. When you and I, instead, when we can, but if we are sitting here this morning making excuses of why we're going to be disobedient, thinking that somehow that validates our excuses, validate our sinful actions, then we are demeaning the significance of Jesus' death on the cross. If your and my excuses can validate our sin and just wipe them away, then what was the need of Jesus suffering on the cross? It was unnecessary. There's a second thing. Second thing is if we are contemplating sinning against someone here or in the very act of sinning against here, a spouse, a friend, a child, a parent, whoever it might be, then the Lord's Supper this morning would be taking, we'd be taking it in an unworthy manner. See, the Lord's Supper for for centuries was really referred to, especially early on, was referred to as a love feast. And that love feast was a demonstration of the great love that Christ has for his body, but it was also a demonstration of the love that the church had for each other. And so people would know, hey, they're, they're in, in this love feast. It's demonstrating their love one for another. But, but, but notice this if, if you are here this morning, if I am here this morning, and you and I are contemplating sinning against somebody else, and, and now we're going to sin in a moment and in our sinful actions, we need to realize that that is not only going to cause initial pain, but it is going to cause continuing pain in the life of those that we love. Then for us to sit there and go, I'm going to continue in this and I'm going to do this thing it'd be unworthy of us to come and to be able to take the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is supposed to be a reminder of our love for one another. And you don't love one another by sinning against them and causing them pain, especially when you know that it's gonna cause immense misery for years to come. So what do we do? We come and we sit back and we think of the Lord's Supper that we're to have and we need to take a couple moments. I'm gonna ask Nick to come right now and we need a couple moments for you and I to be able to reflect to be able to think on, here's the prayer, Lord, if there be any wicked way in me, show me, bring it to mind. For some of us, we're already thinking of it. Some of us, it's already coming to our mind. The Holy Spirit has taken the word of God and has done his job, and he's driven that truth into the heart of every one of us, brought about conviction, which is not to hurt you, but is to help you, for you to be able to press in and place your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. So some of us, we need to just take a little bit of time. I'm going to ask you if you would just stand together. We're going to close our eyes and bow our heads. If you want to pray, I'm going to encourage you to be able to pray. Down here, I'll pray with you if you need to. But if not, let's just take a moment to reflect. Here's the questions I want you to ask this morning. Am I trying to validate anything in my life that I know is sinful towards God? If there is, repent and turn. Am I right now, before I even take the Lord's Supper, do I have something against somebody? Am I sinning against them? Am I causing pain in their life and misery for the future? If it is, repent and to be able to turn. Now, that just covers a a couple factions of what we do in our sin. But whatever it is that the Holy Spirit brings, it's time for us to turn. It's time for us to confess and to be able to come clean. Let's do that. Dear Jesus, I pray as we come to you, Lord, that you would forgive us and cleanse us. In your precious name we pray, amen. Let's just take a couple moments to think.